ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello and welcome. I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we'll listen in on the second half of an extended conversation in which Casey Luskin, Associate Director of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, updates Brian Auten and Chad Gross, hosts of the Apologetics 315 podcast, on what Casey calls ID 3.0. It's a long list of exciting recent developments in the science of intelligent design. The first voice you'll hear as we begin is Brian Auten's. I wonder, what do you think have been the major strides forward in ID theory in the past 10 years? You mentioned the different uh, new research that's going on, but wh- what do you think looks most promising that you might be able to share? Well, yeah, I think that there have been a lot of major strides, but one of the most exciting things is just seeing how many peer-reviewed articles that our camp is publishing. Uh, I think a f- few years ago, we hit our 100th peer-reviewed scientific paper, and many of these papers have been published in mainstream journals. So uh, to me, that's, that's really exciting. Uh, we're talking about journals like the Journal of Theoretical Biology, PLOS One, Quarterly Review of Biology, Annual Review of Genetics, Journal of Bacteriology, um, and many, many others. I mean, I'm just giving you a very, very scratch the surface kind of review of this. I, that To me, that's very exciting just to see how many papers ID is publishing in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Um, again, the other big, big, I think, stride is just the growth of our research program. So maybe I could take you through sort of what ID 1.0 2.0 and 3.0 mean, at least the way I would frame it. And that'll help explain what ID 3.0 is doing. So, so I, the way I would sort of frame the three stages of ID research is ID 1.0 is sort of where we initially generated the basic theories of design detection by detecting information, concepts like irreducible complexity from Michael Behe, specified complexity, and the explanatory filter from William Dembski, and sort of some very early ID works. I would say that was probably from about the mid 80s to 1999. Um, ID 2.0 was like from 2000 to 2014. And this second phase involved attempts to experimentally apply some of the predictions and hypotheses of ID 1.0 to real world systems. So we're looking for complex and specified information in biological systems. We're testing irreducible complexity. Um, We're asking whether co-option can take place um, to explain how irreducibly complex systems can arise. There's about, uh, you know, 70 or so peer-reviewed pre-ID publications that are published during this time period of ID 2.0, which I would say was from around 2000 to 2014. Uh, well, now we're in ID 3.0. And ID 3.0 is a new phase of ID research that's really trying to use intelligent design as a paradigm or a heuristic to guide ID research to show that there are many systems where ID thinking can be applied. And th- this phase of ID research is being used to answer questions in fields like epigenetics, or molecular biology, or phylogenetics, or paleontology, or genomics and genetics and looking at junk DNA. There's so many new fields right now that ID is being, I think, applied in, that that is sort of the new frontier of intelligent design research, is that we're trying to see how ID, we're, we're finding evidence for design, but we're also saying, look, the evidence for design is pretty compelling. So what if we use intelligent design as a guide to do research? Um, how can ID sort of help us to, to serve as a guide um, in the research that we're doing. So we talked about, you know, finding high CSI. We talked about finding junk DNA. Um, we can also use ID in systematics, sort of studying the relationships pre- between organisms, where ID predicts the existence of similarities between widely different types of organisms, what evolutionary biologists often call 
conversion evolution. But ID argues that we don't necessarily have to rely upon sort of descent with modifications to explain the similarities between organisms. We might be able to explain it through common design. And that's sort of a possible way of understanding conversion evolution. Paleontology. ID is encouraging scientists to understand, well, what happens when we have large infusions of new information into the biosphere? Um, how will that show up? And I think that many of the explosions that we see in the history of life flow out of a very uh, natural prediction of intelligent design that information will be infused into the biosphere abruptly. Systems biology is a burgeoning field of biology that encourages biologists to see uh, systems as being designed from a top-down basis um, in a coordinated fashion rather than sort of like kludges that were cobbled together haphazardly from the bottom up. And when you see biological systems as interdependent and coherent and dependent upon one another, um, that gives you a huge new view of biology and a way to try to test the way biological systems works. And I think that systems biology, a lot of the folks in that field are not necessarily ID proponents, but uh, many of us in the ID research community, some of which are using systems biology, think that it's, it's very consistent with intelligent design. We could go down the list. Physics and cosmology, not all the research for intelligent design is from within uh, biology. Some of it comes from systems, or sorry, from physics and cosmology. And in th these fields, ID encourages scientists to investigate and discover new instances of fine-tuning of the laws of physics and the properties of our universe uh, that you allow for advanced forms of life like us to exist. So ID is certainly, uh, I think, inspiring good science in a variety mm -hmm. of different fields. Um, an example of fine-tuning is Guillermo Gonzalez, who is a, an ID-friendly astronomer, he uh, came up with the idea of the galactic habitable zone uh, He with a couple other scientists, but he was very much a part of developing that idea. Basically, the idea that there are only certain pockets of, of area within the or space within the galaxy where uh, advanced forms of life to exist. Many parts of the galaxy are too rich in radiation or, or too poor in the kinds of metals that are needed to form planets or to form uh, the various elements that are needed for life. So you need to have a, a place in the galaxy called the galactic habitable zone where life can exist. And so this is another fine-tuning parameter that's been, I think, deduced or inferred by ID proponents. So uh, there's a lot of examples of this kind of thing. And, and again, I think this ID 3.0, we can talk some, about some of the specific projects if you guys want, but ID 3.0 is showing that ID can be applied in a variety of different fields. I think that's a really powerful point that you're making there, because I imagine sometimes people think of intelligent design theorists as people who are sitting around looking at science and coming up with arguments for design and then publishing books. And I don't think that they think about the practical use of it. Uh, for example, in your debate with uh, Adam Shapiro, it was really intriguing when you brought up that there are nanobots being made or designed that could potentially remove cancer and things like that. And uh, I think I'm getting that right. So I just thought that was really encouraging for people to hear that this is not a bunch of eggheads sitting around impressing each other. This is something that has practical use in real life that can impact and improve our lives, which I think good science should. So I think you're making a really powerful point there. Well, let, let me tell you, Chad, there are actually multiple books that I would like to be writing, but I don't have time. I do <laughs> not have time to do it. I don't know when I'm going to find time to write some of these books because I am so busy managing our research. It's a great, mm. I really am enjoying my job, to be honest with you guys right now, uh, working with these people and, and, and helping people to just problem solve, troubleshoot, make sure they have the resources they need to do their research. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the projects you just mentioned is building nanomachines 
or they're really nano drills that can kill um, cancer cells. Uh, They can kill antibiotic resistant bacteria and also viruses. And this research has implications for the obstacles to evolving the first cell. And the reason why is, you know, if it takes this, if it takes, what does it take to build a machine? Well, this research is showing that to build a molecular microscopic machine requires intelligence. And a lot of it, by the way, um, these little machines are very difficult to produce. Um, and research from this project has been published in journals like Nature, American Chemical Society, Nano, ACS Nano, uh, ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces, and Nature Nanotechnology. Um, and what these nano drills can do, basically, you can put give them the ability to recognize certain tags that are on certain cell types, whether it's a cancer cell, maybe a bacterial type of cell, or maybe even a virus. And they can find their way to those cells, and then you can activate them, and they can bore a hole in the cell membrane, and then basically all the contents of that cell leak out, and the cell is destroyed. And they have very high levels of basically killing off whatever their targeted cells are, and there's promises these might even be usable on viruses. Obviously, the, the implications and applications there are obvious. So, so I think this is a very exciting project. We've been very happy to fund it. Um, and it's been a project that it holds that shows how intelligent design reasoning, how, how can we design machines? Where do we get machines from? It requires intelligence. Um, using ID mm-hmm. principles can actually help us solve real problems in biology, like antibiotic resistance. Yes. Shifting gears here a little bit, I've noticed a bit of an increase in Christians that hold to a type of theistic evolution model of creation. Of course, BioLogos, probably most well-known. I do realize that some ID theorists would be in, in the theistic evolution camp to a degree. However, you and Dr. Meyer and some other people have been somewhat critical of that view. And I was just curious as to what what are some of your concerns with theistic evolution? Yeah, so... To, to understand what, what our concerns about theistic evolution are, we first have to define theistic evolution. Um, mm. And theistic evolution means very different things to many different people, okay? Now, True. we have to first define the word evolution. The word evolution can have multiple definitions, even within the scientific literature. So, for example, it can mean simple change over time or small-scale changes within a species. Well, nobody, whether you know inside or outside of the ID movement or Whatever, you know, I don't know of a single scientist of any background on this topic who disputes evolution when we define it as small scale change or change within a species or change just change over time. Everybody agrees that evolution does happen in that respect. Another way of defining evolution could be common ancestry, the idea that all living organisms are related. But even that definition of evolution uh, leaves open the possibility of design. I mean, you could have a form of guided common descent. Where, you know, sure, maybe one type of organism is descended from another, but in the interim, there was information that was infused into that biological lineage that radically changed it. And I I was actually talking this morning to uh, Gunter Beckley, who's an ID-friendly paleontologist, and he basically holds to sort of a form of guided common descent. It's not common descent in the sense of, you know, this is just all unguided, you know, material mechanisms connecting you to... Uh, your dog or your cat or bacterium, there's been huh. huge amounts of intervention in the history of life and intelligent causes or intelligent cause that has intervened um, in the history of life um, amidst that descent. And then, of course, the final definition of evolution that we, that we often see is that the driving mechanism of that change or that descent is natural selection acting upon random mutation. Of course, there are other forces like genetic drift and other standard evolutionary mechanisms, but that the driving mechanisms 
are sort of these apparently unguided processes like selection, like mutation, or other things like genetic drift, okay? So if you say you're a theistic evolutionist, the first question I ask you is, well, what do you mean by evolution? Because, well, I, I, I believe in a creator, and I believe that uh, species can change over time and to, in a small extent. Does that make me a theistic evolutionist? Uh, Michael Behe accepts common ancestry, but he's a proponent of intelligent design. And one of the key tenets, when you, when you really dig into a lot of the theistic evolution literature, like Francis Collins's book, uh, or other uh, theistic evolutionists leading folks like Ken Miller, or a lot of the arguments, frankly, from BioLogos, well, they have been heavily critical of Michael Behe's arguments from irreducible complexity. Okay, so they do not like arguments that we can actually detect design in nature, even if you accept common ancestry. These theistic evolutionists, the bio, many of the folks in the BioLogos camp are very critical of Michael Behe's arguments. So I don't really think that they've come up with very good uh, rebuttals to Michael Behe's arguments, but the, the point is that um, I think that by and large, the leading theistic evolution organizations really do reject some of the foundational um, arguments of intelligent design, namely that there is information and complexity in nature, which cannot be produced by an unguided natural cause, but is instead best explained by an intelligent cause. Okay. You're not going to have an, uh, your garden variety theistic evolutionist at BioLogos and many of these leading theistic evolution groups, Faraday Institute, they are not going to agree with that statement that we can actually scientifically detect design. Um, and they're going to disagree stridently with Michael Behe on that point. So, you know, yeah. So I don't think that a lot of folks in the ID movement will identify as a theistic evolutionist. So what are some of my concerns about theistic evolution? Well, first of all, I think it often does not engage very, it's not fully and highly engaged with the actual evidence. One of the questions that they love to ask is, well, could God have guided the evolutionary process to make life? And I often find that any question that begins with the words, could God, usually the answer is yes. And usually it's really not a very interesting question. Okay. I mean, God can do whatever he wants. All right. If God wants to use evolutionary mechanisms to create life, he can, he can do that. Now, theistic evolution does pose some potential philosophical conundrums. D the Darwinian model of evolution. I mean, I've got walls of biology textbooks in my office um, at Discovery Institute, and many of them have defined, defined Darwinian evolution as an unguided process. So if you're taking the standard evolutionary view and you're, and you're a theistic evolutionist, you're saying that somehow God guided an unguided process. Now, whether there's a way to make sense of that in terms of divine providence, divine action, you know, it gets into all kinds of deep philosophical and theological questions. You know, it's not, it's not for me to say, all right? But I will say this, that if the evidence doesn't look like it was the, the product of an unguided process, then we don't have to waste time trying to figure out how God could guide an apparently unguided process, all right? So if the evidence doesn't look like life is the result of a, of a Darwinian material process, and it actually looks like there's evidence of design in nature, then why should we wait? We don't have to worry about wasting time trying to reconcile um, theism with a view that frankly is very difficult to reconcile. So um, I like to approach well it from, from a scientific standpoint and say, look, what does the evidence say? If the evidence does not say that life is the result of an apparently unguided process, I mean, even Francis Collins in his book, The Language of God, says that if, if the standard evolutionary view is true, which he argues in his book that it is true, he says that the history of life would have at least appeared to have been unguided. Okay, he says this hmm. in his book. And I find that very interesting because, you know, Richard Dawkins famously said, 
that biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So Dawkins, of course, thinks that it looks designed, but it really wasn't, right? Then right. we have these theistic evolutionists coming along saying that it doesn't look designed, but it really was. It's like we have Stockholm Syndrome to our atheist captors where we want to, you know, just agree with their conclusions that life wasn't designed when they're saying themselves that life looks like it was designed. I mean, yeah. it's just, it, we're, we're getting into kind of like a surreal world here. So my, my argument is, look, what does the data say? The data is, in my opinion, strongly pointing to intelligent design. Um, BioLogos and the theistic evolution crowd have come up with so many attempts to knock down our ID arguments over the years, and they have not succeeded. They have not been able to show that you can produce this new high CSI through, through unguided, apparently unguided evolutionary mechanisms. I think that ID arguments are still standing very strong. Um, and so what, where does this leave us? Okay, let's, let's shift back into the implication mode. All right, well, in the book of Romans, Paul says that, there's, that God is, quote unquote, clearly seen in what has been made, okay? So let's now ask, what, what is most um, consistent with that, that verse? A scientific model which says that we can find evidence for design in nature or Francis Collins's view, where if we replay the history of life, it would at least appear to us as if it had been unguided. I mean, he uses the word unguided. That's the exact word he uses. Okay, so if the history of life appears to be unguided, to me, that's kind of the exact opposite of when Paul says in Romans 1 that God is, quote unquote, clearly seen in nature. God is not, quote unquote, clearly seen if you're claiming that the evidence shows that, that it looks like it was unguided. It's the opposite of that. So I think there's a real tension between Romans 1 and what a lot of theistic evolutionists say. In fact, there was a, a, an article at BioLogos. Um, they published an article once that said, and this is a not a direct quote, but it's it's a pretty close quote, that um, their view of uh, evolutionary creationism is what they often like to call their view. And it says, evolutionary creationism does not have very much apologetic value. <laughs> and I read this, I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like you're actually admitting this. Okay. That like, there is very little apologetic value to, to what they're doing. I do think actually that, I you know, I think that they need to be a little bit more generous to themselves. I think that there are some folks who are already Christians who find that in a biologos evolutionary creationist view kind of helps them find a way if they're already committed evolutionists and they're sure that that's what they want to be, then biologos and, and the theistic evolution, evolutionary creationism camp is there to try to give you a way to make sense of it. Okay. And I'm not here to mm. deny that to people, but I do not hear very many stories of atheists being converted by a model that admits it has very little apologetic value. Okay. I mean, I don't see them giving atheists wow. very many reasons to change their minds. Instead, what they basically done is they've taken the standard evolutionary model of how life arose. And they've just sort of baptized and said, by the way, this is how God did it. You won't find any yeah. specific evidence for that in nature. It's just a faith-based position that we hold for purely sort of, you know, almost like fideistic blind faith reasons that God is the designer behind it all. And you know, that's fine. Like there's a lot of things in our, and I don't believe that faith is necessarily blind, but there are many things in our Christian faith, our Christian walk that we just sort of do accept because we trust God, you know, and we don't always have evidence for everything in the way that we'd like. But I think that in the case of God's existence, we as Christians have reason to suspect that we should actually see evidence because Paul says that he is quote unquote, clearly seen in nature. So something is off there with theistic evolution. Okay. It is something is way off because as Christians, we should be expecting to find evidence for God in nature, yet they're telling us that we don't. 
And they're telling us instead that the history of life appears to be unguided. They're telling us that when our atheist friends tell us that life appears to be designed, but it really isn't, that actually life doesn't appear to be designed, but it really was. And I just find mm. some, some huge disconnects there. So there, we could go on and on about this, but that's sort of my take on theistic evolution. But I, I primarily approach it from the evidence. It's just not supported by the evidence. If the history of life does not seem to be a fully unguided show, then why should we waste our time trying to reconcile our faith with that kind of a perspective? Yeah, very good. One more question I have here is seeing that you're right in the thick of the ID movement and know every sort of research project going on, it seems. I wonder what you found to be maybe the most powerful arguments or maybe even ones that you've seen people maybe change their mind after being exposed to certain ID arguments. Yeah, so I, I do think that some of the research that we've done that I, I discussed earlier about the origin of proteins is really sort of the bread and butter ID arguments uh, that these are arguments that uh, that show that really the basic predictions going back to the earliest days of ID are true, that there is so much information in living systems that they cannot evolve by a step-by-step -step process, and yet they contain an information-rich, complex and specified information-rich language-based code um, that, in our experience, only comes from intelligence. So when we talk about Doug Axe's research, finding high levels of complex and specified information. I know a lot of folks who, when they saw that evidence, it was published in the Journal of Molecular Biology, by the way, um, when they saw some of Doug's research in those papers, they felt like, wow, this is really compelling evidence and ID is really up to something real here. Um, another project that I think has excited a lot of the, the scientists within the ID community and that I'm very excited about is something called the Engineering Research Group. Um, and I did not talk about this in the Adam Shapiro debate, so I, I can talk about it here maybe for the first time. At least other people have talked about this, but I don't think I have. We have a large consortium of over 50 biologists and engineers who are trying to apply principles from systems biology to see if we can better understand biology when it is looked at from an engineering lens. Uh, we sponsored a conference last year where about uh, 40 to 50 biologists and engineers gathered to uh, together try to make better sense of biology from an engineering standpoint. And they're finding that when we assume that biological systems are actually designed and are not, again, they're not just these kludges that were cobbled together haphazardly, that engineers and biologists can actually work together to make progress through essentially what is called systems biology, where we assume that, you know, parts are there for a reason. These systems communicate with each other. They interact, they interface. They're, it, the, a living cell, a living organism, a living being is an integrated whole. And these are not just parts that have sort of just, uh, you know, through an unguided process, just happen to be, f find some way that they can, you know, barely connect with each other. No, organisms are highly fine-tuned, optimized uh, systems, which have a lot of interconnectivity. Um, and so last year, there's a PhD engineer involved with this project who published a three-part series of papers where he analyzed the bacterial flagellum and chemotaxis, which is a mechanism by which bacteria are able to target food and swim towards food. Um, and he, he looked at it from an engineering standpoint and he asked what would be needed engineering-wise to create a food-finding system for bacteria. And he went through many available options and ways to engineer the system and found that the best options basically are what we, you know, what we do find in nature, <laughs> something like a bacterial flagellum, an, an outboard motor on bacteria with an integrated uh, system into the bacterial cell that works with other subsystems, sensors basically, that are then sending signals to a, a central processing unit that then sends signals out to the bacteria to tell it where to swim, 
how to redirect itself using the flagellum as its as its uh, propeller to find food. I mean, you think of a bacterium being just a simple cell. Heck no. They're highly sophisticated systems. Uh, or another project coming out of this is looking at the cell as sort of an embedded computing system um, and where it has uh, information processing, uh, primary memory, secondary memory, memory addressing, low-level memory layout, memory management, a cache, timers, um, RAM, data formatting, and many other things. So there are many projects that are coming out of this engineering research group that I think are, are very exciting. And they're showing that uh, really when you view life as engineered, it makes more sense. We can make better sense of it. And I think there's a lot more to come from this engineering research group. So I wanted to say that if any folks uh, want to get involved when the engineering research group, go to Discovery Institute website, contact us, and we'll get you plugged in. Excellent. I just have one more question for you, Casey. I know you can only go into so much detail on this, but during your discussion with Mr. Mr. Shapiro on Unbelievable, you shared that there are many prominent scientists that are kind of coming out of the woodwork in support of ID. And could you just describe that as much as you can, just because I personally found it encouraging and I, and I think some of our listeners would as well. Well, so, so first off, I'm just going to give you guys a fact. I can't prove this to you, but this is the life I live. On a, on a weekly basis, we have scientists coming out of the woodwork, contacting us at Discovery Institute and wanting to get involved with intelligent design. I try to not let, I try to let, uh, leave no scientist behind. And so I try to always make sure that when someone reaches out an email, that we do a Zoom with these people. So Brian Miller and I, uh, the two of us often tag team, Zooming with uh, scientists who are, you know, finding us. So sometimes these are PhD students. A couple months ago, we had a wonderful conversation with a PhD student in systems biology, who thinks that ID is the way to go to make sense of biology. In the last couple wow. of weeks, we have, we've had conversations with two biology postdocs that we've just recently met at, I won't say where, but let's just say top schools. I mean, like top, top schools in the country who are interested in intelligence design and want to work with us at Discovery Institute even, you know? So th this happens all the time. So the idea that there's only a, a handful of scientists that support intelligence design is really not true. The vast majority of these folks are early in their careers. I mean, these two postdocs that we spoke with recently, and then that PhD student, we talked to tenured faculty as well. In fact, last week I talked, no, it was a week before last, I talked to a tenured uh, biology professor at a public university, uh, we'll just say in, in the Western United States. And he actually teaches his students about the debate over intelligence design, gives them an assignment where they're able to weigh the evidence for evolution and intelligence design and explore it however they want. They can come to whatever conclusion they want. They just have to support it with evidence. This is a tenured biology professor who just reached out to us a few weeks ago. He is tenured, so he can actually be openly doing this. He doesn't have to worry right. about losing his job. But this PhD student, the two postdocs we recently talked to, these guys are in a very different position. Um, if they were to talk publicly about their views on intelligent design, it would get them into a lot of trouble. So we certainly advise them to keep their heads down, to lay low, and to wait until they're in a secure faculty kind of tenured position before they do that. So the point is that there are a lot of folks out there who are sympathetic to intelligent design, but they really are not able to talk about their views. So what is like the most secure that you could get in your career? You know, if you are intelligent design, if, if you wanted to talk about your views on intelligent design, well, I would say being a Nobel prize winner is, is pretty secure. Um, <laughs> we've actually had a couple Nobel prize winners who have endorsed intelligent design. Um, last year, Nobel laureate at Cambridge University, a physicist named Brian Josephson, endorsed Steve Meyer's book, Return of the God Hypothesis. And in the endorsement, he said, 
Far from being an unscientific claim, intelligent design is valid science. Another Nobel mm. Prize winning uh, physicist named Charles Towns, who was at UC Berkeley, he passed away in 2015. But before he passed away, he said, intelligent design, as one sees it from a scientific point of view, seems to be quite real. This is a special universe. It's remarkable that it came out this way. If the laws of physics were not just the way they are, we couldn't be here at all. So there's a pretty strong endorsement from a no another Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. There are uh, three Nobel Prize winners who endorsed a book by Marcos Eberlin that Discovery Institute Press published a few years ago titled Foresight. Uh, Marcos Eberlin is one of the most prominent chemists in B Brazil and a member of the Brazilian National Academy of Sciences, uh, where he's widely recognized for his work on mass spectrometry. And he's a high-level convert to intelligent design. And again, his book got endorsements from three Nobel Prize winners. Um, I don't know exactly where all of them stand. On. One of them was Brian Josephson. I don't know exactly where they all stand on ID, but if they're willing to endorse a book arguing for intelligent design, clearly they don't think that he's crazy and that these ideas are crazy. Yeah, right. But uh, I think, you know, one of our favorite examples of a high-level convert, because we work so closely with him, is Gunter Beckley. Gunter is an Austrian paleontologist and entomologist who uh, specializes in insects and dragonfly, uh, dragonfly fossils in particular. And he first came out as a Darwin skeptic and ID sympathizer in 2015. But his story is really interesting. He was a curator at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. And in 2009, he was asked to organize their Darwin Day event for uh, the bicentennial of Darwin's birth. I don't know if folks may or may not remember this, but in 2009, there was a big, lot of conversation, a lot of talk about the fact that it was 200 years since Darwin was born and 150 oh, yeah. years since he published Origin of Species. So a lot of big Darwin Day events. Darwin Day is February 12th. That's Dar Darwin's birthday. So um, Gunter wanted to create an exhibit at his museum to show how strong the evidence was in favor of Darwin's theory. And in order to do this, he decided to read some of the books of Darwin's critics, uh, Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, et cetera, other books. He was expecting to find that the evidence was overwhelmingly against intelligent design and that there was no argument uh, you know, against evolution that was valid. Instead, he found that really the criticisms of Behe's work did not hold water. And there was something there and that these arguments for intelligent design were actually much stronger than he was expecting. He became convinced sort of privately that intelligent design was correct. And when he finally sort of came public, I think it was in 2015, he immediately faced persecution at his museum. He kind of became persona non grata. But, mm. you know, their loss was our gain because Gunter now works yeah. for us, works with us here at Discovery Institute. Prior to his coming out as an ID proponent, he had a Wikipedia page about his many scientific accomplishments. But after being canceled by his museum, Wikipedia then canceled him and tried to erase him from history. Wow. And his Wikipedia page is now gone. So, uh, but Gunter is a very credible scientist, a PhD in geosciences. And he's one of the uh, heads, uh, uh, leaders of our Waiting Times project. One of the research projects we're funding, which is basically looking at the fossil record and saying, okay, we know that some, from the fossil record, there's certain time brackets where certain features could not have existed at time A, yet they did exist later at time B. And then they asked the question, well, what are some of the genetic requirements to produce these features? And then given known population genetics factors like you know, weight, uh, the population size or the generation time or the mutation rate, is there enough time for these traits to evolve given the amount of time that's available during the, uh, what we know from the fossil record? And they published an article in the Journal of Theoretical Biology last year 
where they laid out a uh, population genetics mathematical model that they can then use to ask these questions. And they're now actively applying this model to apply it to other systems. So this is a really uh, exciting research project we're funding that Gunter is one of the leaders on. And we're looking forward to seeing them basically test the evolvability of various features that appear in the fossil record abruptly and asking whether Darwinian evolution can be the answer for those systems. Wow. Thank you. We've talked about the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the scientists that we've talked about really are the tip of the iceberg. We have now over 600 students that have graduated from our summer seminar um, every July in Mm. intelligence design. Many of these people are now going on to become, um, they're either getting their PhDs or they're now postdocs or they're young faculty that are friendly to intelligence design. Quite a few of the alumni of our program are already contributing to ID research. And if folks want to get involved with this, come to our summer seminar. Uh, You can find it online. Uh, This summer seminar for July 2022, it's already pretty much filled because it's happening in just a couple months. We just did the admissions over the last couple weeks. But come to our summer seminar. You'll get to learn a lot more about ID research, get to meet the folks who are doing it, and and you can get involved. Super. Very encouraging. Uh, Casey, we really appreciate your time. And uh, of course, like we said, all of your work, we want to point people to the resources that you've mentioned there. Where Where's the best go-to place where they can kind of find everything? And that be discovery.org? Yeah, discovery.org is sort of our, our homepage. You can find, we have a lot of different programs at discovery.org. So if you go to, you can click on the Intelligent Design link at the top of the page and you'll see how to get all the information on ID. But really our, our main website where we put out information about Intelligent Design and evolution is evolutionnews.org. And from there, you can get daily articles on evolution and intelligent design. And you guys have a great podcast. If it's okay to mention our podcast as well. Sure. Um, it's a, Absolutely. Okay, thanks. It's, it's a ID the Future. You can go to idthefuture.com to get our podcast and uh, a lot of great resources there too. Super. Casey, thanks so much for being with us. We very much appreciate it. Great to talk to you guys. Yes. And thanks for the opportunity. That was Brian Auten and Chad Gross of the Apologetics 315 podcast at apologetics315.com, concluding their recent interview with Casey Luskin. Once again, we say thanks to Apologetics 315 for permission to replay this interview. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.